Welcome to Teo Podcast, the Pandemic Press. I am your host, Rashni Hevawasam, and today we have a very special guest. Um, his name is Terry Venon Thiel. He's a deep-time geopolitical analyst. And um, he, today we are going to talk about um, basically going into a new and completely different era at a faster pace right after the pandemic. We are just to be clear that we are, the pandemic is not going to bring you back to the same world we had right just right before it. We are completely facing a new different era and that's happening at a faster uh, space and this conversation will be about explaining on what's actually ahead of us. He has a wonderful book written if you want to really um, get into um, all the specific details that this author mentions in what he sees um, in the future. You can go grab his book uh, on Amazon. It's available. And his the name of his book is called Fourth Age. So I'm going to like dive into the conversation we had. Uh, my name is Terry Thiel, and I am a Really uh, quite happy to have this conversation. I uh, am a brand new author. And uh, I, I think after 50 years of dealing with uh, government, business, and academia, uh, I finally have something to say. <laughs> you can start with your book and please describe the cover of it. I love the story behind it. Sure. Uh, actually... The book is Our Fourth Age, a village elder story for young homines sapientes about surviving their future history. And the screaming lady on the cover is Cassandra, who was priestess of Apollo, daughter of Priam in ancient Troy. And the story goes that Apollo uh, sought her sexual favors, which she refused him, and he cursed her with the gift of prophecy that no one would believe. So she could foretell the future and knew what would happen, but could neither convince anyone that that was going to happen or change uh, the future events. Uh, and so in many ways, I think Cassandra is the patron saint for strategic planners, uh, because you try to look into the future, uh, identify what may happen, and uh, get people, be they business or government, to think about that, and they don't want to do that. Uh, so uh, after 40, 50 years of doing strategic planning, uh, uh, Cassandra is my, my, certainly my patron saint. <laughs> yes but that is so interesting like she could uh, she could definitely use her vision in order to plan her future well apparently uh, uh, a good question although it didn't turn out well for Cassandra uh, 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 horrible things happened to her at the end um, uh, so I think she was uh, uh, fated to foretell what would happen to her, but could not uh, could not alter the course of events. And uh, I, I think in some respects, that's sort of the question we're all facing at the moment, uh, which is uh, what the book is about. Um, it's about the accelerating rate of change that we are experiencing both in terms of societal and technological change, uh, all of which have the potential to be very disruptive. And 
what makes it unique is the degree and the rate of change are accelerating at a at a rate that I would argue we have never as a species experienced heretofore experienced. And uh, the question that the book raises is whether as a species we have the capacity to survive what's about to happen to us. And uh, if I may, I'll, I'll, I'll simply give you a brief description of those disruptions. On the societal side, uh, when you think about demographics, which few people really pay attention to, uh, for the first time ever, more people live in cities than in the country. For the first time ever, half of all countries are not reproducing themselves, they're shrinking. And when you look at the United Nations demographic forecast through the end of the century uh, and the sort of conventional wisdom that the world population is going to continue to grow forever, in point of fact, 95% of the population growth anticipated through the end of the century is Africa. And the rest of the world is flatlining or beginning to shrink. And when you look at alternative demographic experts who have factored in the impact of urbanization on birth rates, many of these experts think that world population will peak within the next 30 years and at that point begin to shrink. And when you think of our policymakers who are, have been so historically concerned about population growth, nobody's been talking about shrinking population, aging population, and that's the future we're confronting. When you think of China, China's already getting older and it's already shrinking. India will continue to grow for the next 20 or 30 years, but it will peak out before the end of the century and begin to shrink and grow older. And what exacerbates the situation in those two countries is that for cultural and political reasons over the past generation, if not longer, those countries have failed, uh, favored male babies over female babies to the point where today there are tens of millions, not just millions, tens of millions of Chinese and Indian males for which there are no Chinese or Indian females. That presents an awful lot of testosterone that is unrequited. Uh, well, the ego as well. It's very destabilizing. So there's a, a whole raft of societal issues that are destabilizing. If you think on the technological side, between 3D printing, artificial intelligence, synthetic biology, nanomaterials, cheap, ubiquitous, reliable, off-grid energy, uh, just to name a few, these are all dramatically impactful technological changes that are all coming together at the same time. And what they're doing, and what I don't think people appreciate, is they are obsolescing the classic Industrial Revolution, Henry Ford mass production model uh, and we are going from a world, and this isn't my quote, but we're going from a world of a few companies making millions of things to millions of companies making a few things. That is a very, very different economic model. And how these societal and technological disruptions play out is, is, is going to be very destabilizing. And for me, the biggest concern is what I'll call time depth. When you think back over the course of human history, 200,000 years since we've been anatomically modern, 
whatever that means. Any generation, children could look at their parents and their grandparents and model their future on the behavior of their parents and grandparents because the world would not have changed that much that they couldn't forecast, I'm coming back to Cassandra, what their future was going to look like. What's changed is because of the rate of change. There isn't anything that I can tell my grandchildren about how I was raised, the world in which I was raised with a black and white television with three channels and a, uh, a rotary telephone on a party line. Um, there isn't anything about my experiences that are going to be of any value to those grandchildren trying to cope with the disruptive change they're experiencing. And when you think of my generation, the boomers, uh, at the moment, we're, we're, we're totally mystified uh, of the world around us. It just, you know, we, we can't make any sense of it. Uh, and, and so what I'll call time depth has collapsed to nothing. And so our children and our grandchildren, your generation, yes. how they cope with that future. Well, what do they have that gives them some guidance? And I would argue it sort of falls back on human instincts. And those instincts were embedded in us over hundreds of thousands of years in order to survive in an environment that we left hundreds of thousands of years ago. And those instincts I would summarize as, as four things. One, and these are all to pass on our genes. That's biologically what instinctively we're driven to do. I'd argue we're afraid of everything. And we tend to overreact when we are uh, confronting uh, an unknown chaotic environment. Uh, so we're very fearful. Even when it comes to change as well, any type of change. Any type of change. The uncertainty of it, the unknown of it scares us. So we form groups. We're very social animals. And we have discovered a couple hundred thousand years ago that being in a group improved our survivability. So we're always forming groups. And, and you can, I mean, when you think about it, the harshest punishment beyond capital punishment that we have is solitary confinement. It's taking a person out of social interaction. That's how we punish somebody. So we're fearful, we form groups. Within groups, we attempt to improve our status within that group because that improves our chances of finding a mate and passing on our genes. And we'll do just about anything in a group to improve our status, which may include killing other humans. We do that a lot. Yeah. And finally, we're curious. But when I say curious, it's not that we're curious in some sort of wonderful philanthropic sense. It's we're curious, to your point, about the uncertainty that surrounds us. And we're, we're desperate to understand it before it kills us. Yeah. So all of our research, when you, when you watch any of the programs about uh, 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 exploration of space, they have these wonderful titles. Uh, there's, a, there's a TV program here in the States been done for a number of years called How the Universe Works. And when you look at the episode titles, it's killer planets are coming, uh, death by, you know, black hole. Uh, mm -hmm. It's always put in terms of, oh, my God, we got to figure out what this is before it comes and destroys us. So we're fearful. We join groups. We increase our status. And we're curious. Those are the four instinctive categories that shape who we are and are probably the only thing that are going to continue forward 
because our societal and cultural mores that have developed aren't going to fit in this dramatically different future. And the challenge is whether or not as a species, not so much my generation, but I guess your generation, yeah. is, is able to cope with that rate of change with, without our killing ourselves. Because yeah. it used to be, it used to be if we were fearful of somebody else, we'd take out a sword and hack them, okay? Well, there's a difference between having a sword and an ICBM, okay? The impact of an ICBM is much greater than the sword. And we've got a lot of ICBMs uh, and other things that kill, can, they have the capacity to kill lots of people very quickly. Uh, and when you just look at the politics of the moment uh, and, and the, uh, the destabilization of our political systems, um, uh, we're confronting chaos and we're afraid and we overreact. Uh, and that's what the book is about. We should be collaborative instead. Use. Yes. 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 And, and uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, the uh, research that's been done, cutting edge research that's been done, historically the, the thinking was we have a primitive brain, which is driven by these instincts, but we have a more modern brain, which is rational and analytical and takes in facts and analyzes them and basically controls and tempers the instinctive brain so that we, we don't lash out and do things. Well, the, the current thinking has changed to, to interpret the rational brain's role, not so much as keeping the instinctive brain under control as much as coming up with a persuasive story to tell everybody else in the group why it is we're going to do what the instinctive brain has told us to do. So the rational brain does, and when you think about that, if all of our brains, the rational part of our brains work the same way, then when we looked at a set of facts, we would all tend to come up with the same answer or solution to a problem. And that clearly is not the case. It's dictated by our societal and cultural perspectives. And so the rational analysis comes very, very different solutions come out of the same set of facts, which suggests the rational brain isn't doing such a good job. So it's quite the challenge to see whether or not uh, humans have the capacity uh, to overcome, to, to cope with their instincts, to survive the future. Yeah, so the rational part of the brain is like the left hemisphere and the intuition-driven side of the brain is the right hemisphere. And should we use both at the same time? Well, the, you know, the big challenge is thinking as an individual and thinking within a group because we are so driven to belong and we are so driven to improve our status within our groups that we succumb to groupthink. Uh, this is George Orwell's 1984. And the leaders of the group that we belong to set out a set of criteria for participation in the group as to these are the things you are going to believe. And we will ignore the facts that are right in front of us. Uh, we, will, we will deny uh, uh, conflicting evidence uh, in order to demonstrate allegiance to that groupthink. So um, the capacity of an individual to analyze is always battered by the desire to belong. And those competing interests are, that's, that's the challenge. Um, overcoming groupthink, um, because we have so many different kinds of groups. And, 
And I've seen this play out time and time again in business with business cultures, um, which are sort of a microcosm uh, of society as a whole. Um, depending upon the business in which you work, there is a culture and you adhere to it if you are going to be successful. And if you challenge it, you will not be successful. And the facts and the analysis really have nothing to do with it beyond adhering to those cultural norms. Um, Even Einstein also kind of knew this, I think, before. That's why he mentioned the intuitive mind is like a sacred gift and the rational mind is like a faithful servant. Mm. Yes, yes. Well, there's a there's another great quote about Einstein from uh, when he was teaching, I believe, at Cambridge. And uh, apparently it was at the end of the term and he was walking across campus with one of his graduate assistants. And the graduate assistant said, uh, Professor, the, the exam that you just gave to the physics students, wasn't that the same exam that you gave last year? And Einstein said, yes, yes, it is. And he said, well, well you know, why would you do that? And Einstein's answer or response was, well, the answers have changed. And so the, 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 the point being that the underlying, our underlying understanding of the world is constantly evolving. Um, and it's a, it's a you know, source of constant uncertainty uh, with which we have to deal. Yeah, and uh, you have, we have to notice that some of the group of people are followers and who are the leaders of it. And the people who are leaders have um, kind of the mindset to break free, like from this kind of uh, societal or cultural um, disruptions and like create their own thing because they see the future itself. Well, they think they see the future. <laughs> yeah. But there are so many different leaders that have so many different views of what the future is. is. <laughs> there are always two sides to it. Yeah. And and we compete. Yes. And so so those leaders, when you think about the countless times that we have gone to war uh, among different groups over things which today you would look back on it and say, well, why did that, why did anybody ever go to war over that? Yeah, I mean, exactly. really? Um, but as a species, we, we compete and you have two groups that have leaders and leaders are afraid of each other. And um, one of the challenging things about the, the, the human mind is our, our capacity to, to take on information and digest it. Um, uh, Professor Robin Dunbar has uh, 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 done a lot of analysis about uh, how many people uh, you, you can, you can uh, deal with uh, and the size of the limits of the size of the group that can actually work together. And I'm going to blank on the name of the other individual, other professor. He worked for AT&T back in the 50s and came up with the um, analysis that basically says the human brain can hold basically seven bits of information, plus or minus two, at any given moment, which is why our telephone numbers in the States are seven digits long. Uh, and so when you, when you think about these limitations on our capacity to hold information and our limitations on the number of people with whom we can interact, my experience has been the best size of a working group is seven or eight people, plus or minus two. Uh, and if you get a group any larger than that, it becomes dysfunctional. And so Everything, even at the size of a nation, leaders boil it down to those same sort of heuristics of it's Trump versus Putin. It's, you know, these, these sorts of personality conflicts that dictate what nations do. 
Um, and again, it's all, it's all at some level in very instinctive behavior, just dressed up in modern garb. Yeah, they should be actually, their main goal should be peace. Because if you have peace in mind, you will be collaborative. You will prevent the prevent any wars from happening. And that's what we have to do in order to stop chaos um, and go forward to a better future. We need well, and the challenge is whether or not, in effect, your generation can manage that. Uh, uh, the one interesting trend, um, it may be interesting, it may be frightening, I, depending upon your point of view, is for the first time, um, millennials and Gen Z are the first two generations who have grown up with the capacity to engage with their peers on a global basis, 24 seven, all time. I mean, you, you're, you're constantly on, you know, this, this little device here yes, uh, and enables uh, my, my, my grandchildren to communicate and interact with other people on a global basis in a way that as a child, I could never have even imagined, as well as giving you access to a, a fire hose of information. And the question then becomes whether or not we are seeing the emergence of rather than national groups, we are seeing the emergence of global groups of people who are in effect sharing the same sort of worldview because they're interacting at that level rather than interacting at this level. And the gap between the people who are always on and the people who are never on is getting to be like that. Yeah, going greater and greater, yeah. The yes. Yes, which again may be our salvation, but it may be is the source of, of conflict. Yeah, it depends on the person. It's like um, it, people should be fugue. They should be aware of their surroundings and they should read up, learn, be more adaptive in life. I think that's the way towards salvation. And if you don't, and if you don't think in a collaborative manner, we, we might lead ourselves into war. Well, and it, and it becomes, you know, uh, uh, the, the internal war that we're fighting is with our instincts. Yeah. It's which tell us that we should be competing against everybody else we should to get that mate. Yeah. And climb we that social ladder. Yeah, but we should be competing with ourselves. Yeah, yeah, but it, it, you're absolutely right. That, but that's that's the challenge. Whether as a species we have the capacity uh, to make that leap. When you when you look at those societal and disruptive changes in my book, I, I do some scenario planning uh, rather than trying to forecast the future. Uh, because as a strategic planner over the years, I think scenario planning has been a, an excellent tool for looking at alternative futures and then playing the what if game uh, so that it, it broadens your, your thinking. And when you look at scenarios for the future, um, they're really on two tiers. The one is what are the what are the technological implications for what I'll just call business, but it's it's the the business of of, of the species in terms of how do people survive? Uh, how do they get enough food and what have you? One of the big challenges may be in the future that as technology improves, 
our capacity to produce things, that the historic need of a human to work in order to survive goes away. There's a great book by Neil Stevenson called The Diamond Age, which was written in 1996. It's a, a science fiction book of a future that is driven by nanotechnology and artificial intelligence. You predicted in, the future, yeah. And in that world, people are completely taken care of. They have food, they have clothes, they have housing, but they don't have jobs. Yeah, because te technology takes care of it. And then the question is, what do you do as a human being if you don't have to work? How do you spend your time? How much bad poetry could you write? You know, it's yeah. and uh, that in a way is perhaps a dystopia. And so when you look at scenarios of what the future might hold the technological implications for individual behavior, and then the societal implications for developed countries versus developing countries. Um, for countries that are losing 40% of their population like Eastern Europe and Japan and Korea versus countries that are growing by 300% like Nigeria, 400%, how those societal dislocations and those technological changes come together and what they mean. And, and I don't think any, frankly, I don't think any of our political leadership at the moment really pays attention, understands that. Hans Rosling, uh, Swedish, I believe he was a surgeon, became a, basically a statistician, spent many years, he passed away a couple of years ago. And uh, he spent many years working on the disconnect between the actual facts of the world and what people believe. So he went around, he went to uh, Davos and he did a, a survey of the participants at Davos who are our learned elite, right? 13 questions, multiple choice, as to different facts regarding the state of the world. He then replicated this with, I think, 12,000 people uh, around the world, different countries, the same questions. And what was startling about this was that the condition of the world really is so much better than it used to be in terms of poverty, education, disease, yeah, on a whole range of different levels, the actual state of the world has improved dramatically since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. But when you saw the results of how people thought the world was, the vast majority of the people really had no understanding of the actual facts of the condition of the world. And what was troubling was when you looked at the people at Davos, who are the ones who are, you know, setting the policy for the future, they were some of the worst results in terms of actually understanding the facts of how the world was. Well, if you don't understand the facts, that rational brain that you've got working against your instinctive brain, if you're working off of the wrong facts, you're not gonna come up with the right policy. Yes. So we've got challenges, that's for sure. Yes. And, and I guess what the book is about is, is, isn't, it doesn't have the answer. I'm not that smart, yeah. but it raises the question and it, and it challenges people that we need to start thinking about this. Yes. Um, and also, can you mention the three ages of which humans have already survived? There's already a scale called the Kardashev scale that was made in 1964, I believe. And that uh, scale like portraits the future civilizations. Well, uh, yes, but I mean, that scale, that's, well, we've gone through, I'll, let me put it this way. 
I would argue as a species, we have gone through three ages. Our first age, we were hunter-gatherers from about 200,000 up to about 12,000 BC. Our second age, we were farmers and herders from 12,000, 10,000 BC up until I'll say 1785. And I picked 1785 because that's when steam engines became commercially available and were sufficiently reliable that they powered the Industrial Revolution. And our third age is when we manufactured from 1785 up until I just picked 2020 because I think COVID and pandemics always become uh, major disruptors and we're in the middle of one. So we're about to enter into that fourth age. Well, to your point, the fourth age is when these societal and technological disruptions all impact us and what that looks like. If we survive it, there is a fifth age. And the fifth age is when our species finally expands beyond our immediate planet into the solar system and starts populating a, a broader footprint than planet Earth. And that then gets to your question about, well, where are we in terms of a, a civilization um, uh, on, the, on that uh, uh, scale? We're, we're <laughs> yeah, like, we got a long way to go on that scale. Yeah. So, like, I think we are in between, like, um, probably between type zero and type one. Yeah. 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 We got, we got a long, a way, long to, way to go there. We got, a, we got a long way to go before we start uh, commanding the solar system. But we're on that cusp. We're on that cusp. With, uh, with, I, I think the, um, who, the owner of Tesla, I think he tried to find life in Mars. <laughs> well, you know, the, the whole issue of uh, you know, planetary exploration, um, and it gets to the curiosity thing, you know, why, why did you climb Everest? Because it was there. Um, and and uh, I, I think it's, it's that constant drive, that instinctive drive to understand what's out there before it kills, kills us uh, that will drive us to populate the solar system. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of, was it Arthur Clarke who said any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Um, and uh, when you think back a couple generations, if you could have brought people from the late 1700s, early 1800s into the present day and, and, and showed them our world, they would consider most of what they see to be magical. Uh, uh, I think by the end of this century, uh, that will certainly be true. Uh, uh, the rate of change will be such that we can't even contemplate what that world will look like. Um, so the rate at which that happens, I think a uh, hundred years from now, people may look back and, and, and uh, kind of shake their heads at, at how unable we were to, to envision the future just because it's going to happen so quickly. It's going to be an exciting time for you and yours. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm at the tail end of it. <laughs> yeah, like uh, I'm only 26 and like uh, I have a long way to go. I just right. got it. Yeah, You're, you are going to experience this a whole lot more than me. Uh, and, and hopefully you're better equipped to deal with the, the rate of change because you're used to it. Yes. Or more used to it uh, than boomers. I, yeah. I mean, and I can adapt to certain situations. So. Yes. Yes. I think part of this, you, you mentioned collaboration, uh, and part of it is adaptation. Um, the ability to evolve um, 
my, my daughter-in-law had this wonderful conversation with her children, my grandchildren. They were watching a movie, uh, Home Alone, yeah. with Macaulay Culkin, Bob Christmas. And in the movie, which was made quite some time ago, actually, uh, Macaulay Culkin is watching a movie on the TV, and he's using a VHS tape player. And the kids are watching the movie, and they, they don't ask, know what it is. Well, what what's that? What's that thing? And Aaron, my my daughter-in-law, said, "Well, that was a VHS tape." And they, well, what's what's that versus a CD versus a DVD? And she's trying to explain the difference between a VHS tape and a DVD player versus Netflix. <laughs> and uh, she said, well, you had this box and you attached it to your TV and you went to the store and you rented this little rectangular thing and you brought this home and it had a tape. And then you put this yeah, in the machine. Like a cassette. Yeah. And then when you were done, we actually had another machine that would rewind the tape before we then took it back to the store. And, uh, and one of her children looked at her and said, how could you live like that? <laughs> like, how could you survive in that world? And, it was interesting. <laughs> well, you know. I, I look at it there in a way that, oh my God, I wish I was like born in that era because like I'm not blending in with any of my peers. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a great YouTube video of uh, uh, a man who has, I, I believe one of them is his sons and a friend, two 16, 17 year old boys. And he, he brings them, there's a box sitting on a table. He takes the lid off of the box and there is a rotary telephone sitting on the, the table. And he gives them a piece of paper and he says, you have five minutes to dial this telephone number on this phone. And these two 17-year-olds have never seen, yeah, they have never seen a rotary telephone before. They have no idea how this thing works. And watching the two of them trying to figure out how to use this rotary telephone, uh, you know, the, the disparities between the generations, the rate of change has just gone like this. Uh, and I, I go back to what I said earlier. There's nothing about my upbringing the world I lived in as a child during all of my formative years and how I view the world, there, none of those experiences apply to the world that you and uh, my grandchildren are going to um, inhabit. It's just a very, very different place. Good, good, good luck with that. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think like, we were more like uh, the human race was more intelligent at your time, but now they got their phones everywhere. Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it, when I was growing up, the like, interaction, yeah, the interaction among the people was yeah. very different. Okay. And for example, now. If I go out on a, you know, go to the store and I've forgotten my phone, I feel naked. I mean, like, oh, my God, I don't have my phone. I'm not connected to the world. <laughs> well, for most of, you know, up until, oh, geez, you know, for the first 40 years of my life, I wasn't connected. Um, you, you were raised in a world where you interacted with people. Um, Everything was at your fingertips, just one yeah. type, and then you find the answers. To yeah, and, and and doing research. You know, I was in the I, I was worked I worked in national security in the intelligence community, and when I was in the intelligence community in the nineteen seventies nineteen eighties, um, challenge the challenge was getting information. The, the sources of information, what they call OSINT, which is open source intelligence, newspapers, books, television programs, radio programs, but that was OSINT of the day. 
and the volume of it wasn't that huge. And the challenge was getting good open source intelligence. The challenge today is the abs absolute reverse. The open source intelligence is a fire hose. And you turn this thing on and just with this phone, I can, I can tap into the, the, the collective intelligence of the globe uh, and being able to sort it out to make sense of it. Uh, the human brain, when it works through information, there's a, there's a model uh, that they've come up with. It's the D-I-K-W model. Data, information, knowledge, wisdom. Data is this huge ocean of facts and figures. Information is when you've parsed out of that the useful bits. Knowledge is when you've taken those useful bits and you've analyzed them to figure out how to do something. Wisdom is the awareness of whether or not to do something that you have the capacity to do. Simply because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. So the challenge with business nowadays is it's driven by knowledge. Managers who know how to do things. And we've done it for the past 20 years and I'm gonna put my head down and I'm gonna continue to you know, do what I've been doing because I know how to do that. Wisdom is looking at different forms of knowledge and saying, should I continue to do that or should I do something different? And I think most of humanity has operated off of basically knowledge, if not, <laughs> they've only operated off of information because we, we overreact quickly, so we'll get some information and we quickly look at it and we'll go, well, I'm gonna go do this because doing something is better than not doing anything. And so they overreact and they act on information rather than knowledge, so they're doing the wrong things badly. But simply because you have knowledge doesn't mean you're doing the right thing. It just means you know how to do it. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, you know, when you when you think about the acceleration of the amount of data that we now have, which went from singles to millions <laughs> of data bits, and everything's going to have a sensor on it, and so we're going to be collecting in data like you would not believe, and the ability to synthesize that data into information, and then from that information figuring out what to knowledge, what to do with it. And then ultimately having the wisdom to understand whether or not to do it. That whole process is changing dramatically just because of the inflow of data. It's, it's just a fundamentally different thing. And I think your brain, frankly, is more adapted to it because you're more used to it because you grew up with it yeah. than my brain. But like I have like instinctive drivers, like uh, in some areas of life, like I haven't have enough of experiences of dealing with my instinctive drivers to actually kind of figure out the situation. And I think that that's more effective for me other than experience a whole range of different experiences. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you don't, uh, and people who have this range of uh, experience, does it mean that they learn from every experience? Because every experience is so complex. How can you learn from every experience? Just because you have a lot of experience, you haven't actually, you know, learned every single thing. Well, it's interesting. I, I mentioned in the book, you know, they don't talk in, in normal conversation. You don't talk about wise young people. You talk about wise old people. Now, why is that? And, and I would argue that older people can be wise because they have succeeded 
in surviving a lifetime of failures. Yeah. Cause you learn from failing. Yes. And unfortunately some failures will kill you, but if you've survived enough failures, you've developed some wisdom about what to do and what not to do. Young people to your point, haven't had enough experience to make those sort of sorting choices. Yes, but the, but the challenge is the rate of change is increasing to the point where you may not have the luxury of time. When you look at American businesses, the rate at which American businesses are failing since the beginning of the 20th century, I, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, uh, but the I want to say the average lifespan of a corporation in the early part of the century was measured in like 90 years or something like that. And I'd have to get the number. It's down to like 17. Businesses are failing faster. And it's because they don't have the capacity to adapt. They, they just keep doing what they were doing. Mm -hmm. They have knowledge to do a certain thing and they continue to do it as opposed to seeing the world around them and how it's changing and, and going to doing something different. And that adaptability is, is the, is I think the key. Yes. Um, I find myself in that situation, like, but I feel like my instinctive drivers are kind of helping me succeed. Like, oh, I have a luck. I have a lucky charm or something like that for now. I, yeah, I, I, I do feel like that. I may not be the most experienced person, like I feel that, but I feel like I know what to do. Mm -hmm. Well, instincts are, are you know, we, we, uh, we hope we can ignore them, but they're there and, and they, uh, they flavor everything that we do. Um, and you, uh, you can deny them, uh, but you can't get rid of them. <laughs> so what are these insti instinctual uh, drivers that all humans possess? Well, again, I'll go back to the, the four I mentioned, yeah. uh, which is, uh, and they're all designed to pass on our genes. That's sort of the, the grand imperative is to pass on our genes. So we're, we're afraid of everything. Yes. We overreact, you know, because if you see something moving over there in the, you know, maybe is that a lion over there in the weeds? I, you know, so I'm going to, I'm going to overreact to what I think that might be because that's a good survival mechanism. So, so we immediately overreact and we tend to overreact violently. We form groups. Uh, we don't work well individually we 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 desire uh, a group membership uh we we try to gain status um i'm doing it right now you're doing it right now we're trying to improve our position within a group that we have identified of similarly situated people doing a certain sort of thing um and and then uh, uh we're curious uh, because we want to figure out what what is that? Because I want to make sure it doesn't kill me. Uh, I want to I want to you know what's yeah, going on. Like, yeah, a change of perspective will be okay because we are curious because we want to know how to succeed. We want to know how to like come out of this situation. Being better off. Yeah. Being better off and not dying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like this is a long. I feel like. Um, most of the peers like I interact with they're lazy and I don't know like I'm, I'm, also, I'm also trying to like ask them to have more goals in life because you have this life is you have a mind you're supposed to use it you're supposed to read you're supposed to gather knowledge you're supposed to form goals in your life see where you want to be in what age that's what you have to do this is what this life is about well, and again, and again, and not all uh, 
humans are are of of the same cut. I mean, we're not all identical. Yeah. Uh, and and there are leaders and there are followers. And everybody uh, possesses, I think, different types of talents. Mm-hmm. It's like something I can do, you can do it better than me. Well, it's, for example, uh, um, there are a number of different uh, psychological tools out there. The, the one I'm most familiar with is called Myers-Briggs, the Myers-Briggs Personality Indicator. And Myers-Briggs will identify your preferences along four different personality attributes, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, whether you're uh, uh, pragmatic or you're an intuitor. Um, and, and it combines these four attributes into 16 different personality types. And this has been validated across nations. It's, it's sort of a universal that we have these different personality types. So if they are universal, it leads me to think that those different personality types were embedded in us as a species early on because they had a survival value. Having different types of personalities in a group improved the survivability of the group as a whole. And in fact, current research indicates that what we consider to be psychological um, defects, ADHD, autism, um, I'm trying to think of the third, dyslexia. Those are considered to be psychological defects today, but they're universal and they've existed forever. And the current thinking is that having people with those attributes in a, in a, uh, ba- in a group 200,000 years ago added survival value to the group. So being dyslexic, that's only a problem if you have to read. Well, we've only been reading for a couple hundred years. 200,000 years ago, we were all visual. We were visual learner, learners and dyslexia wasn't an issue. And dyslexic people are incredibly creative. Yeah. So, so having dyslexic individuals in your band, in your tribe, was, was a survival value. And the same was true with autism because autistic people, while they may have sort of a tunnel vision on things, what they do focus on, they master. They, they focus on it like nobody's business. So having autistic characteristics was also a survival value. Um, and you, you don't appreciate the, the, the variety uh, between personalities and these other traits within the species. And to your point that you know, there are leaders and there are followers. There are ambitious people and there are lazy people. So, and we got to figure out how to do it with all of them. Yeah. <laughs> figure out which one is good at what. Find out That's their right. talents. That's right. That's and then right. learn to work collaborative, uh, collaboratively. Yeah. And unfortunately, in the future, it may be that nobody has to work. Which that'll that'll be that's that's a frightening thought actually when you think about it. If you have nothing to do in order to survive, what will you do? May I was picturing everybody have their own thing, like own business, own whatever they are doing. But if robots took over the world, what <laughs> we, if, if, we will we will we will be too lazy. If food and shelter and clothing are provided for the vast majority of people so that they don't have to work for it, then the question becomes, well, what do they do all day? Yeah. Nothing. We won't adapt. We won't progress. I don't know. We'll come to a stop. Play golf. I, I don't know. You know <laughs> it's a good idea. 
start a war. <laughs> Anyways, thank you, Teal, um, Terry Teal. We had an interesting conversation. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. I, I, I hope you found it interesting. And, uh, and uh, I would also love to read your book. Is it available on Amazon? It is available on Amazon as an e-book e and paperback and even hardback if you're highly motivated. <laughs> <laughs> I do prefer the book, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, well, again, I'm a boomer. Reading it on a Kindle just isn't the same thing. So I, I, I always have my uh, hard copy. So yes. yeah, just, just look for The Screaming Lady. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you very much. And yeah, thank you for being here in this podcast. Thank you guys for listening to another show on the Teo Podcast Pandemic Press. You know where to find us. We are everywhere. And I hope you really got your chance to listen to this conversation. And so you will be more prepared for the future that's about to be headed. And you need to adapt to what's coming because you can't stick to your old ways. And um, this kind of era is a method for people to evolve and go to the next stage. And if you can't, you, you will be wiped out. It's kind of like that. It's not that scary, but like, you know how genetic selection works? It's like that. Anyways, um... Thank you for listening once again. Uh, I am your host, Rashni Hebawasam, and I'm signing out.